Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Sakara Life. As you listen to today's episode, we would love to invite you to keep an open mind. We created this podcast to hold space for new perspectives and to invite in alternative thinkers and speakers that touch on both science and spirit, a founding principle of Sakara. That means that the statements expressed by our guests don't always represent our personal views, the views of Sakara or Sakara Science and Advisory Council. Our mission is to provide you with the tools and inspiration to live the Sakara life, but ultimately, you're in the driver's seat. You have the power to form your own opinions and make educated decisions from what you hear and learn today and every day. Just as our light work challenges you to dig a little bit deeper outside your comfort zone, we hope today's topic stretches you in new ways and opens you up to new perspectives to bring forth an even greater personal transformation. Today, we are so excited to welcome Zach Bush, MD. Zach has a different way of looking at the world, that the connection between our nature and humanity runs deeper than we could have ever imagined. He's an expert on gut health, soil quality, and our food systems at the intersection of human health and the health of our planet. And he is one of the few who is able to bridge the scientific world with the spiritual world. Dr. Zach is a medical doctor trained in internal medicine, endocrinology, and hospice care. Through his Farmer's Footprint program, he educates about and advocates for regenerative agriculture on a mission to eradicate toxins such as glyphosate from our farms. Please welcome Dr. Zach Bush. Also, please note we are recording from our homes via Zoom, so please forgive us for any sound issues. Well, Zach, we are so excited to have you here. We've been fans for a long time and feel our missions align in so many ways. So we're so grateful that our listeners get to hear what you're up to. Awesome. Yeah. So glad to be with both of you and your entire audience. Your trajectory with your professional careers and your company that came out of it, as well as uh, the same trajectory for me, we don't redirect unless there's crisis. And we are in the biggest global, you know, awareness of crisis, even you know the, the scale of the crisis is yet unknown and may not actually be very big, but we've created a crisis out of this current situation that is uh, arguably the biggest you know, movement of, and change of wealth that we will see in our lifetimes is happening right now. And so the crisis that you know, 60% of families in America find themselves in right now, I, I think harkens back to your transformative journey, uh, my transformative journey. If it wasn't for those hit the, hit the wall moments where all doors seem closed and you're forced to pause, 
then life doesn't find its purpose. The, the right door doesn't open. And so I, I have a sense that despite all of the concerns and conspiracy theories and everything else out there, I think that this may be uh, nature's path for us to all pause for a second and find our path. It's so true. And, you know, Whitney and I always talk about how Sakara was born out of our rock bottom. And we definitely agree that a lot of good, at least in our lives, it was born out of our hardest times and really brought us to our mission. So what would you say is your mission here on earth? I think I've come to see it as just being a pathfinder for myself and for my community at large. And I get to employ a huge group of people now, much like you guys do, I'm sure, where you see so many different skill sets and talents that are necessary to make any project uh, come to its full potential and fruition. It takes a, a community to manifest something like that. And as I've seen the strengths of my team come up around me and that helping to, to find my own strengths, I think it's somewhere around this uh, pathfinder journey where, where I can be out ahead of a system and find new opportunities, find new pathways, and then uh, use my team to, to, to explore those and really uh, define those paths at the scientific level in our laboratories all the way to you know our marketing groups that are trying to figure out how do we communicate a new science of health to a community that is constantly bombarded with really bad science and really false impressions of, of what food and nutrition look like. Um, and so that's kind of much of the journey for us, I think, is uh, pathfinding for a new mindset. Mm. And for those of our listeners out there who aren't familiar with your work, how, how do you explain what you do? In a nutshell, our whole team is, is looking for root cause solutions. And to find a root cause solution, you have to find the root cause problem. And so I left academia after 17 years of being in academic science and medicine. I left in 2010 and started a rural health clinic uh, teaching a plant-based diet in Charlottesville, Virginia, or south of there, actually in a little tiny town called Scottsville. Uh, Virginia, a town of 550 people, uh, a lot of fifth generation poverty in the in that county. There's actually a huge food desert there. There's really not grocery stores. Most people are eating out of gas stations and that kind of thing. And so you have this really severe uh, paucity of of real food and uh, nutrition in this group. And so we, I started there. And over the last 10 years, uh, we've you know, emerged as kind of an international leader in the space of the microbiome. And what we found at the root of food was bacteria and fungi. And my uh, work at, in academia was in cancer research, among other things. And in my cancer research, I was studying the impact of nutrients like vitamin A to kill cancer cells. And uh, over the years, it became obvious that the the most powerful medicine that we had found was down in the soils. And the, the soil was representing a huge untapped potential for medicinals because we had been focused so much on plants. And so uh, this was correlating well with the debut in the late 2000s, early 2010s for us to correlate a lot of the genomic studies that were coming out around microbiome diversity and the importance of that to prevent cancer, autoimmune disease, chronic fatigue, whatever condition you can think of, that microbiome diversity in the gut correlating with soil systems. And so our work has become 
focused on the intersection between soil health, plant health, and human health, and how those all transect to the microbiome. And I'm interested, you know, a lot of our listeners know what the microbiome is. They're definitely educated listeners, but I'm just curious, how do you define it? Uh, That's actually an important question because there's so much misperception uh, in the science community as much as in the the lay public around this. Uh, The microbiome story, I think, got usurped by the probiotic industry. And we were told there's just a few good bacteria out there. And if you have enough good bacteria, then everything will work okay. That's a very, you know, 1960s kind of mindset uh, that there's bad bacteria and good bacteria and they're fighting against each other. Uh, Nature just doesn't do that. Nature does cohesive, coordinated biodiversity at every, you know, in every sector you look in nature, whether it's, you know, the the species in native grasslands all the way to the, the gut microbes you've got to have biodiversity for the system to work. And so we have to get, let go of this very human belief that we are battling against nature for our health. Nature is our health. And the microbiome has been at the center point of confusion around this because of, you know, the confusion of germ theory and things like this. We thought until the 1970s that we were just fighting against all bacteria. If the probiotic industry did anything for us, so at least it was to, to crack the door open to say maybe bacteria aren't bad for us. But I think they really slowed down our progress in, in making it seem like there was only three or five species of good bacteria and the rest of them were against us. There are 30,000 species that are important to the, the healthy human gut. But when you look at the microbiome, that is a fraction of the intelligence of nature in the microbiome. When you start to work in the parasites, there's 300,000 species of parasites. And the fungi, there's 5 million species of fungi. And so just from biodiversity, the microbiome is represented in fungi, parasites, and, and this extraordinary bacterial population. And the bulk of that is in the fungi as far as biodiversity and you know, volume by mass. The mycelium within the soil systems and the fungi within your body represent a huge bulk of, of the you know, capacity of the microbiome. And so the microbiome is living organisms that are single, single cells that can reorganize themselves into to very complex systems, mycelium being a good example of those complex systems. And so in the, in the fungi, it includes a couple of different forms, including yeast and, and stuff like this. And these all have very important parts within the body. Integrative medicine, I think, has set us back in a couple of different ways in that it's also condemned parts of the microbiome. It says that you know, Lyme spirochetes are causing Lyme disease very little evidence that that's true. Lyme spirochetes are playing an important role in detoxifying a toxic body. And so if we find Lyme in our bodies, it's because we've created a toxic you know, landscape that necessitates a spirochete to be there. And we have you know, 10 to 15 species of spirochetes in our mouth at any given moment. And so it's, it's, it's not accurate to think, oh, this tick just gave me this spirochete and therefore I'm sick. It's some form of imbalance. It's a form of imbalance. Yeah, it's a change in terrain, really, that leads to that imbalance. So if you create a toxic and oversimplified terrain, it's going to create a shift of the same imbalance and and oversimplification in the microbiome as well. So it's through chemical agriculture, chemical pharmaceuticals, chemical, you know, uh, cosmetics. We are putting a ton of sulfur compounds in our bodies, and we need the spirochetes to clean up the sulfur compounds because the human cell can't use sulfur as a fuel source, whereas the spirochete can. And so uh, the way that we treat 
you know, the, the condition of Lyme disease or chronic Lyme, as it's been termed, is to clean up the body. And as soon as you clean up the body, the role for the Lyme spirochete disappears and, and the bug goes away. But long before the antibodies shift around the bug, you're, you're changing the clinical spectrum by just cleaning up. So I really believe that the symptoms of chronic Lyme are related to the toxicity of the body and not due to the bacteria that happens to be uh, in the mix there. And I'd say the same thing for yeast. We take an antibiotic and then we get a yeast infection and then we dam the yeast. It's like, no, the yeast is the natural response to a damaged microbiome. Uh, and so then we go in with antifungals and try to destroy the yeast. And like, no, you're just, you're digging deeper and deeper into mother nature's biodiversity with these, these antibacterials, antifungals, anti-everything. So uh, we need to stop killing and stop that effort. And we need to go to one of an effort of balance. And that's what our lab's been working on for the last eight years or so now is how do, how do my microbes talk? How, how does the bacteria talk to fungi? How does the fungi talk to the mitochondria inside your cells, which are little bacteria with a viral genome? How do these different organisms that, that allow for a human cell to find health communicate and coordinate their efforts uh, for a biodiverse system? And so that's what we've been working on is that communication network. Stop the violence against the bugs. So you've talked a lot about kind of what it means for our intrinsic kind of normal biology in terms of what bugs should be in us, how uh, we have this symbiotic relationship, but it can go the wrong way. What are, what's kind of the environment um, in which it does go the wrong way? Like what, what do you mean? I've heard you talk about kind of inflammation. So when, when does it go the wrong way and, and what kind of environment do our bodies have to have for it to go the wrong way? Yeah, so when the microbiome goes awry, it's usually from an antibiotic or chemical toxin exposure to begin with. And so uh, in the United States and most of you know, the Western world now, agriculture is that, that leading exposure to toxins followed by cosmetic industries. So the toxins that you're, you're most exposed to right now by volume on the planet is Roundup, that weed killer is used at four, four and a half billion pounds a year, which is a number that just boggles the mind. A billion pounds is hard to even fathom what that would look like. But that we're using, you know, four and a half billion pounds of, of a chemical toxin into our environment that functions as an antibiotic. It's not hard to imagine that being our, our primary problem. And for the last seven years, I've been showing that the increase of, uh, of that antibiotic in our water systems and soil, soil, water, and ocean systems correlates perfectly with our cancer risk in the United States. And so the higher the levels of, of glyphosate in the water system, the higher our cancer rates are. And last year at Sun Valley well, Wellness Festival, I showed pictures of China and told everybody that there was going to be a, a next pandemic out of China would happen out of uh, the center point of China that overlaps the worst soil system due to the amount of Roundup sprayed in that province with the worst air quality in the same province. And that happens to be Hubei province, exactly where this epidemic happened. And so it's very easy to predict at the agricultural scale of the planet where we're going to induce these massive imbalances within the ecosystem of the microbiome. And you'll notice that I didn't include viruses in my description of the microbiome. That's a bit of a change um, for me. I used to kind of throw them in, in on the end, but it's very clear now over the last 15 years of science that these are, should not be categorized as microbiome. They don't actually, they are not a life form. They're, they don't have any way to produce energy. They can't reproduce. They're just genetic 
information transversing biology. And so we need to, to rethink our relationship to viruses to realize they're a very crucial part of the way in which biology on the planet adapts to stress. And so when we have a stress event, we send out tons of genetic information out of our bodies. And a lot of those are termed viruses when I think that's probably not very accurate. I think that really what we should be looking at is uh, the genetic communication of stress and our response to it. If you are getting sick right, after the exposure to viral information, it would suggest that your body is at a stress level where it can't adapt to the new information or the stress signal that is represented in that that new genetic code that you're receiving in your body is putting you over some sort of biologic threshold of capacity. And so you mentioned inflammation being a big piece of that. When we see pathology happen in the human body in response to a shift in the microbiome, so again, first problem, shift in microbiome due to toxicity. Second problem then is, does your biology tolerate the amount of stress that the, the, the microbiome is telling you through the virome? And so it's through that uh, virome or, or viral uh, genomic transfer, is your body able to cope with that new information and adapt to the stress signal that nature is putting out? If you induce an inflammatory response and fever and chills and you know muscle aches and increased inflammation in the body, that's you tipping past a biological threshold. Is that bad for you? The answer is most of the time, no, it's probably very healthy for you. We know that fever is one of the best ways to kill cancer cells. We know that uh, you know the activation of the global immune system by something like influenza actually then protects you from other viruses in the environment um, and uh, other genomic shifts. And so there's we need to stop thinking these things are against us. The viruses have been here for billions of years, and they are in every breath of air. They are in every touch of water. You are consuming viruses in a liter of seawater. There are ten to the, ten to the fifteen viruses. In the stool of a seven-day-year-old infant who doesn't have an innate immune system until six months of age, there's 10 to the 8 viruses in their, every stool sample. And so we are viral. Like, we, we produce these things. They don't, like, float in from nowhere and attack us. The human biology is the machinery for human viruses or viruses that would affect the human genome. And they have a specific purpose for our body, some evolutionary purpose, or, or what purpose very much that. Are they? And so the viruses are there to create adaptation to stress. And stress happens when you go out in the sun. Sunlight causes, you know, billions of DNA damage uh, when you're out in the sun. And your body knows how to repair that. And we know that about 50% of the human genome has now been mapped back to viral source. So 50% of the human genes came from viruses. And, you know, full 10% of those human genes are from retroviruses like HIV. And so we would not exist as a biology without the, the millions of years of genetic, you know, additions that allowed mammalian genomes to develop. And so we share the same genome of, you know, 98% of the, the mammalian genome is identical across all mammals. So it's a bat, a pig, or a human. You're, you're at about 98% similarity. There's 20,000 similar genes there. Um, and so it, it's very interesting that the viruses are not against us. They, we are the result of the viruses. We wouldn't be here without them. Some very important aspects of our biology, including the stem cell, is from a retrovirus. So we would not have pluripotent stem cells without an update in the genome that happened a couple million years ago from a retrovirus like HIV. Right. 
And it sounds to me like you're, you feel as though we're wasting a lot of time on fighting against things like viruses and candida and things like that. What in your mind should we be doing instead? We should be outside running around in, in, the, in nature. Like that's it. That, that's all that it takes. You just have to be outside all the time. If you're living your life in, in you know, a drywall box and then you get in your garage and sit down in an off-gassing plastic car and then you drive to a cubicle that's off-gassing carcinogens all day long through forced air and none of the windows open in your office building and then you get in the car off-gassing to the grocery store, buy a bunch of chemically infused foods and then you go home and throw that in canola oil with GMO crap, and then you, you burn that food, and then you in your Teflon that carcinogen, pan. and then you, you know, it's just like you look at a typical American day, you're like, I can't believe we're alive at all. It's not surprising <laughs> we're the sickest country in the world, uh, oh, really? but I can't believe we're alive. You know, so it, it, it's, it's as simple as you know, just change the foundation of your biology by reconnecting to Mother Nature, and so that's. You know, first and foremost, perhaps getting out in a garden, grow some food. If you don't have land for a garden, then join a CSA and volunteer on the weekends to be out there weeding and picking and harvesting with them because being out in the soil is the best way to create a new foundation of health for your body, not to mention the power of vitamin D and the other, you know, millions of unmapped benefits of sunlight against our skin, the respiratory and gut uh, microbial diversification that happens from just breathing real ecosystems is unreal. Um, and so I started a hashtag, uh, breathe your biome a couple of years ago. It's been phenomenally successful and uh, it's worth looking at. If you go to hashtag breathe your biome, you're going to see just, you know, tens of thousands of pictures of kids and people in the craziest cool spots of nature out there in the world. And it's a great reminder to all of us as you tap into that, you know, community celebrating their ability to breathe outside how beautiful this world is that we live in. My wife and I took an amazing hike yesterday for our anniversary in, in the woods of Hawaii here. And the amount of biodiversity that you see in you know, every 10 feet is just so stunning. And, and you just can't believe your eyes have never seen so many of the things just on a couple hour hike. And it was just such a relief for me not to be looking at a computer screen and not to be looking at you know, my email stream or my Instagram stream or whatever it is, it's like, man, I'm looking at real stuff, real color, real vibration of sunlight coming off of these plants and hitting my eye to, to reduce my depression uh, symptoms and things like that. Like the, the fact is, is, you know, the nutrients that, that our brain needs come from those elements of nature, not from some SSRI or some other drug. Like we we will become depressed. We will become isolated at that psychological level if we don't engage. Where do you think we got the idea that we could outsmart nature? <laughs> it's like what I hear you saying is um, we can try and recreate, you know, everything and make life more perhaps at the surface level, pleasurable and easy. You know, we live in those boxes. We drive everywhere. We don't have to walk everywhere but it sounds like we lose out on way more than we gain. So where did we get that idea that we could kind of outsmart nature in this way? Well, if you if you pick up a Western civilization textbook or have taken a Western Civ course, uh, chapter one uh, starts in 900 AD. And it says that Western civilization started in 900 AD at the invention of the plow, which is so interesting. 
that at the moment that we started disrupt soil is when we said we, we developed civilization. And so what that led to, and that's what chapter one is going to tell you is when with the invention of a plow, it allowed people to produce more food than they needed for their family. And so then some families didn't need to produce food. And so they could go be full-time lawyers or full-time, you know, something else. And so it was, it was through the mass production capacity of that technology that we became convinced that technology was good and that uh, the control of nature was uh, our manifest destiny. And so the concept of we're allowed to take over and destroy any indigenous peoples or indigenous seeds or indigenous plant life, we're allowed to accelerate the, the extinction rate on the planet by 10,000 fold just in the last 40 years because we know how to do technology. We know how to control nature. We know how to harness nature to its fullest capacity. We know how to build dams to disrupt rivers that took hundreds of millions of years to develop. We, we, know, you know, we know how to change you know, the, the productivity of soil by dumping petroleum that we dug out of the ground you know, uh, from 700 million years ago. And you know, like we're, we're literally screwing up a billion and a half year old planet for the mission of demonstrating our, our manifest destiny of control and domination and, and extraction all for convenience and a sense of wealth and a sense of control. Ultimately, you're not going to find joy in your life until you learn how to surrender. And uh, surrender is a hard thing. It's constant. You, you can't do it once and be done. You literally have to second by second be surrendering, surrendering, surrendering. And that's a journey. That's hard for all of us. It's hard for us to do it in our relationships. It's hard for us to do it in our health. It's hard for do it do it in your relationship to your food. So it's a journey to let go and flow and, and stop trying to swim upstream and let nature take you where she wants you. I feel like you're filled with so many great, like quotable, tweetable moments. moments. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, write that down, Danielle. <laughs> it really, I, it's funny that we're, we're talking about this because, you know, I'm in New York city as is Whitney. And since we've been kind of stay at home, I've never craved nature more. And Whitney and I are from Sedona, Arizona. Have you been there? Oh my gosh. I, that's on my bucket list. It's one of the most beautiful oh, you parts of the world. It's, yeah. it's very, very special. And so we go home a lot. And obviously I haven't gone home in the past couple of months. And so I haven't really gotten my fill of nature. Not as if once every few months is enough, but um it feels as though like I really feel in my bones what you're talking about. And it almost feels like I was craving this immune boost in some way or something. And mm -hmm. I just, all, all I've been telling my husband is like, let's just go anywhere and just sit outside. <laughs> I don't care where, yeah. just not our roof, you know, where there's all the pavement and cars and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. And not the park either. The park is such a domesticated version of nature. Like you walk through the park and it's planted tulips and grass. That's yeah. Mowed. Depending on which park in New York City, there's a lot of other stuff. <laughs> a lot of other stuff. Yeah, not park in a park. Yeah. <laughs> not breathing your biome. No, do not breathe that biome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. New York's one of my favorite places in the world, though, for its its biodiversity in another sense. You know, yes. What brings people there is the diversity of of ethnicity, thought, you know, creativity. Um, and so it's important to acknowledge that, that there's many forms of biodiversity. And I think that we are drawn to 
that biodiverse environment that you can't find in Sedona. And I mm-hmm. believe that's why you're in New York is because so uh, you can't find that type of biodiversity in Sedona, Arizona. And so I really think that um, New York is an important demonstration to the world of what we don't want to let go of when we go create the new world. We have to create a new society or we're going to go extinct the next 80 to 100 years. And so if we're, if we're going to change that course of extinction, then we're going to have to reinvent everything. Most of all, the way in which we do agriculture, city design, housing design. How do we bring nature back into our daily lives second by second, never letting go of it? How do we create a nursery that, that is integrated into nature so that a child never has to be separated from its nature uh, to sleep safely and, and soundly? And how do we bring uh, the garden into the kitchen and, and all of these things? And so we have to redesign all of that. But we need to remember that this isn't returning to some sort of indigenous you know, hunter-gatherer environment. We, we need to take the best of what we've done and not throw that out with the bathwater, as they say, you know, so we, we need to look at New York City and say, what, did, what went well there? And what went well in New York City is uh, bringing human minds together and creating uh, that quorum sensing that, that bacteria are capable or fungi are capable of and humans are capable of. When you connect at, at, at enough of a large population, you develop a hyperintelligence. And so I think that's what New York has done uh, through proximity on that little island of Manhattan, cram everybody together and, and no matter what their intention, what their sense of purpose is, there's going to be a hyperintelligence that comes out of that space because there's so many human minds in, in each other's energy field. Mm. And so when you walk down the streets in New York and you're bustling through thousands of other pedestrians, you're, you're walking through energy fields. And each energy field is loaded with, you know, electromagnetic field is it's what's creating that. And that electromagnetic field is resonating with uh, the vibration of, of, of the electromagnetic field in a vacuum. But it's also full of electrons that are, that are learning from that frequency resonance and taking that information into the proton, which is then changing, you know, the fabric of the atomic structure, which changes the fabric of our cells. And so when you walk through New York City, you are interacting with electrons that have been inside of somebody else's protons a millisecond before that. And the electrons are actually carrying information in and out of the proton. And so we know that there's black holes we know out in space, but it turns out the proton looks like a black hole and it's a structure function, everything else. And so we have these microscopic black holes within every single atom, within every single molecule, and the black holes are communicating. And so we have some sort of universal knowledge that's between the electron, the proton, and the vibration of the electromagnetic field. And so when we interact with human beings, we get more information. Wait, we do we exchange elect- do we exchange electrons? I'm I, I'm not Constantly. as far into science as Danielle is. Constantly. Wait, yeah, so I, I know electron they can jump from atom to atom. And so if we're spending time together or something, we can we can be sharing electrons between each other. Oh, you're sharing much more than that. And if you've been roommates, which it sounds like you have at some point in your, in your careers, this gets really trippy. But not only are you exchanging atomic information at the electron level, you're also exchanging hormone information all the time in the form of pheromones, but you're also bizarrely changing, exchanging genetic information all the time. And so microRNA is a new discovery in the last five years. 98.5% of our genome does not make a, a gene that then turns into a protein. We just thought it was junk DNA left over from millions of years of turning from a single cell into a multicellular organism. But we now find out, no, it's extremely carefully preserved 
information in the, in the junk DNA. And then we found out the junk DNA was making microRNA, which is uh, information stream from the genome that then changes and modifies the behavior of all of the other genes that do make proteins. And uh, your breath is full of these exosomes, your, your sweat, your skin exudes it, your urine exudes it. You're exuding this microRNA information stream that's telling everybody around you what your current gene pattern is. And so if you're having a stressful day, you're exuding the microRNA signaling, this is a stressful day, there's a short, there's a war famine or pestilence going on, when in fact you're just frustrated at your boyfriend, but you're exuding this energy of, at the genetic level of there's a stress fight or flight state happening. And so you can change a whole household by your genomic uh, output. And certainly that's true in the energy field. Every you know, chronic disease we treat in our clinic, we always find that there's a deep-seated, stuck emotion at the center point of that disease. And so there's certainly toxicity and Roundup and glyphosate and everything else I talk about all the time, but it seems to still be dwarfed by the toxicity of emotion. The most toxic thing we do as human beings is negative emotion. Fear is, is probably the most powerful of those. Guilt, I would say, is number two. Those might actually both be, be you know, bumped off at number one by I'm not enough. But those three emotions are, are so dominant in, in the human psyche, and it leads to all of our pathologic behavior, codependence, all the way to abusive behaviors and everything else. And so we need to learn as a society and certainly as a health industry how to evaluate and clear negative emotion. And fortunately, there's tons of therapies out there that do that, EMDR and EMR, and there's you know, just a whole host of you know, emotion code. Every year, there's you know, two or three more on the market of methodologies for clearing negative emotion from the human energy field. And so this is showing us, you know, this rising awareness of what is driving pathology on the planet. And it has to be due with toxicity at every step, toxicity of emotion and belief, toxicity of the environment, toxicity in developing from a lack of microbiome that detoxes our environment for us. And so it's, it's in this, you know, fight against the world, fight, 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 kill or be killed kind of mentality that we have developed the, the collective human experience of being abusive consumptive, destructive beings. How do you think this all connects to the placebo effect? Hmm. So it sounds like it's all really connected. And what you're speaking to right now is the power of the mind. I mean, if I can tell myself I'm fearful and it creates pathology, then it sounds like I can do the opposite and create a narrative for myself that I'm healthy and create health. Yeah. So there's two things there. I think one is a placebo, which is an external thing that's being given to you or done to you. And then there's the internal story that you just told. I could, I could create an internal dialogue of I am healthy and change things. I think of the two, the latter is way more powerful. And so that internal is far more powerful than a, a red pill that I give you and tell you this is going to improve your blood pressure or kill your cancer. Placebo has been very well studied. Like, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of, of studies that have been done over time on placebo and they always show about a 25 to 35% response rate. And so a very consistent uh, response in contrast to that 25 to 35% success, you only have to show a 10% improvement to get a chemotherapy improved. 
And so you can be one third as successful as a, as a placebo and you can get your chemotherapy approved. And so we are now allowing pharmaceutical drugs to enter the marketplace that are less effective than placebo. And we've been doing that for decades. And so we, we need to, to realize that the power of the mind and belief is far more powerful than some biologic lever we can push on. And that's because as soon as we adopt a new belief perspective or ethos, we change the entire energy field, which means we just change the fabric of the biology itself, which means that every cell in your body just instantaneously changed. There's no drug in the world that can instantaneously change for the better every cell in your body. And so it, it's obvious in the end when, when you find out that we're not the common, we're not the collection or uh, kind of expression of damaged cells, we're the expression of energy field. And so you can do as much as you want to modify damaged cells by, with pharmaceutical intervention, you're never going to create a healthy body. And that was what got me out of the chemotherapy research industry was that simple realization that no matter how good I got at doing my job and being really super ingenious around chemotherapy development, there hadn't been a single case of cancer in the history of mankind that had ever been caused by a lack of chemotherapy. And so I was never going to get at that root cause solution. And I was going to have to, you know, Go, go a different direction if I was going to get there. And so that's when I went into nutrition, which took me into the soil. I know this is kind of an off topic question. And if it's too personal, we can totally edit this out. But when I hear you talk, I think you do a really beautiful job of bridging kind of science and, and spirit. And it, science and spirit is something we talk about a lot at Sakara because I think typically they're imagined as two separate camps and you're either one or the other. And so knowing what you know, and I've heard you talk about how the microbiome is connected to human consciousness. Are you religious? Like, do you, what do you believe? Do you believe that we're all one? Like, is it connected to a God for you? Like, why do you think that we're here? Yeah, those are super simple questions to answer. Three <laughs> questions that humanity has been asking itself since the beginning of philosophy itself. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? Yeah, um, thanks, uh, Dr. Zach. That's right. So in 30 seconds or less, I'm not religious anymore. I, I grew up in a Christian church um, that was an outreach to the hippies in Boulder, Colorado. And it was kind of, it was started by a bunch of union line workers out of Detroit who decided that the hippies were going off the deep end and they needed to, to, to grab these drugged up hippies on the streets and, and get them some honest to God religion. And so my dad was one of those hippies that was grabbed off uh, uh, the street and said he had to go to this church and that they'd feed him a meal if he would go to church and wasn't eating very well those days. So a meal sounded good. So he went and had the meal and then um, had his first, you know, a huge spiritual opening happen that evening at this just home church in Boulder, Colorado. Um, he ultimately became a, a, a deacon and then an elder in that church. And, and uh, we didn't have a pastor in that church. And the teaching was done by the congregation and by the elders and deacons. And uh, so he's, he did a lot of teaching over the years. And so I grew up in that church and, and steeped in pretty intense, you know, review of the theology behind the Christian scriptures. And deeper than the Hebrew, the Greek there of the New Testament, really diving into the Hebrew of the Old Testament and gaining an appreciation for that over the years. So certainly read you know, the Bible many times through you know, over the years, including you know, leading Bible studies and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it was my work in medicine that started to really challenge the, the limitations of my understandings that I had received through that 
that pathway. And I had ultimately found I had put my God concept as a box around a lot of stuff. And it didn't make sense to, that a box could contain something as grandiose as something I would have God. So now, now I think, you know, my favorite quote is, uh, I do believe in God. I just happen to spell it N-A-T-U-R-E. And so, you know, there, there is this great, you know, nature that is an expression of beauty that I think is the fabric of all things. And so what is God? I think God is, uh, is a highly intelligent source that drives for life and the beauty that's in life. It's an expression of beauty through life. And so if God is an expression of beauty through life, then uh, the best we can do as humans to touch that is to touch the nature around us. And the more biodiversity we touch, the more we witness uh, whatever we would call nature or God. And so I, I feel a deep spirituality. I think it's informed by a lot of excellent religious teachings and spiritual teachings, but I try to question myself every day is where is, where am I religious, not spiritual? You know, where, where am I still mired in human belief system and human uh, lexicon uh, when in fact I'm trying to express and experience an infinite something, an infinite, you know, vibration of truth and beauty. And uh, that's what I'm striving for. I don't know how far or close I am to any you know, excellence in that or any true experience in that. But I certainly every day uh, enjoy the moments where I feel further enlightened by that or are further inspired to the beauty around me. And what about when it comes to death? You mentioned the beauty of life, but what also, what about death and near-death experiences? What have you learned as a doctor? Yeah, so my first exposures to that were in the Philippines before I became a doctor. Um, I I was going to be an engineer and then had a, a girlfriend my senior year of high school and heartbreak and when she cheated on me and all this stuff. And only as dramatic as an 18-year-old could be, I was like, oh my gosh, I, I'm so heartbroken. I need to take a year off. Um, <laughs> it's just, just ludicrous that, that you can think something like that at 18, but I did. And so I took a year off, decided not to, to go to the engineering program at CU Boulder. And um, within like minutes of me deciding I was going to take a year off, uh, the same day, an aunt called from the Philippines and was talking to my family and asked if I'd be interested in coming to the Philippines to help out in a midwifery clinic there and birth babies. And I was like, that sounds totally bizarre and cool. Uh, I had never done anything medical in my life. Um, and so went and did that, lived in the Philippines for six months and worked in a midwifery clinic with my aunt, uh, with a group of international midwives in the squats of Manila, Philippines. And it's such incredible poverty. Like you just can't measure this when you come out of a, a privileged Western culture. Uh, the amount of poverty, the the scarcity of food, the scarcity of clean water, the scarcity of clean air, you're just in this toxic lead infused, you know, fumes of, of you know, gasoline and everything else in the streets and squats of the Philippines. And you're watching babies be born into this malnourished and extremely toxic environment and so I saw babies die in that space and I saw a couple mothers die in that space and you know it was it was certainly mind-blowing as a 19 year old kid at the time to to be exposed to death Uh, we have such a sterility in the United States towards death it's so swept away from us that we don't get to see it um, which is a real disservice uh, to our children. 
children and animals understand death. Adults are, are programmed with too much emotional fear and trauma and, you know, some belief in abandonment and all of these things that it becomes this, you know, awful endpoint in our minds. But I think children and, and, and animals understand it to, to not be an endpoint. And I see a continuation of energy that's now dissipated and going back into nature uh, to be re-expressed in the God nature thing that we talked about. And I didn't see it at that time. I didn't see it as beautiful. I saw it as tragic. Uh, I think it informed my, my, in some ways, fear as a physician that I was going to lose my patients. And so I, I think I was uh, working in the ICUs in those first couple of years to try to save everyone. And I believed it was my responsibility as a physician to save lives. Uh, that kind of verbiage is put out there all the time, and it's complete BS. We've never saved a life. Like, life comes and goes, period. Like 100% of us are going to die. And so why do we put that responsibility on a healthcare industry or a physician or a nurse? It's not realistic. It's not, it's not the reality that we live within. So instead, we should be challenged at the beginning to be so present with our patients that we would be witness to the beauty of their journey, whether their journey is one of healing or their journey is one of transformation on the other side of the veil, we should be empowered to be just respectful and awe-inspired witnesses to that journey. And that would change our medical industry radically. And right now there's a bunch of people dying in severe isolation with proposed COVID that should have hands all over them. Instead, nobody's touched them in two weeks while they die alone in an ICU with tubes running outside of the room so nobody has to interact with them. It's not Ebola. This is, this is not a highly infectious, highly life-threatening condition like it's been portrayed. And the, that fear of the virus has led to this very inhumane behavior in the ICUs right now. And I certainly saw that happening in bone marrow transplant units and all kinds of awful spaces of the hospital where we so isolate our patients, you know, in the bone marrow transplant unit, we literally had to go in basically spacesuits. You know, you're, you've got external air you're breathing through long tubes and you're in a full space kind of suit thing going on. And it's, it's ludicrous how isolated these patients are at the most desperate moments in their life. In the ICUs, we see kind of the worst of over-responsibility and over-fear of death. And um, it wasn't until I started to see my patients come back from the other side and hear their stories that I started to, to realize my religious teaching and my, my medical teaching hadn't told me there was something on the other side that was like that. I was told in the religious world, of course, that, you know, you go to heaven at some point and maybe there's a St. Peter and maybe your name is written in the book of life, all this, you know, lexicon that we have. And then uh, in the medical world, this is death. This is the end of biology. This is the end of life as, as and it's a termination point that's undeniable and, and complete. And then these patients come back from, you know, their heart stops for 20 minutes and we're resuscitating and all this stuff. And then they come back and they have these ridiculous stories of what's happening on the other side of the veil. You know, they're, they're visiting dead children and have long conversations with these children to, to have received incredible wisdom from these children that had uh, passed to the other side years before. And, you know, they're, they're having these interactions with, you know, people they've never met that seem to be future looking relationships. Like, it's just like, what, like, what is this that's on the other side? And it's all so vivid. Like, it's not a dream. It's not like a vague experience. They can tell you what the person is wearing and what their breath smells like and what their teeth look like. I mean, it's like the, the, the experience is beyond real. It's more real than what, what our daily experiences here on the other side of that veil. And so that, 
really challenges everything we know right now. We, we're like these infants in the womb that have developed a comfort within, you know, all of our, our whole lifetime of nine months in this warm, safe place that we call the womb. And we can hear sound and we can see light. And we think, oh, that's, that's sensory experience. I can hear my mom's voice. I can hear other people's voices. And I can see sunlight come through the belly. I can see all this. And so that the world is beautiful. And then we suddenly go through this horribly, you know, painful, you know, pressure experience of going through a vaginal canal and it's traumatic and our heart rate's elevated and we're going through the most intense thing we've ever gone through and we think we're dying. And then suddenly we come out of the womb and there's this world that's insanely bright and insanely colorful and insanely full of sound. And it takes us two years before we can filter all of that into language and experience and communicate emotion and all of this stuff. And then we get to, you know, 80 years later, and then we think, oh, that was, that's what was real. That was our life. And then we go through this horribly pressure thing, and our heart rate goes up, and we're in stress, and we're in fear, and then suddenly we press out the other side, and there's something even more beautiful on the other side of that, and it's more vivid and, and more real and, than we could have ever imagined while in this womb. So it's just a rebirth process over and over again, and we need to, to you know, adopt a very humble belief and stop holding on to what we see around us as if it's reality. We are seeing a semblance of reality. Nothing around us is actually real in the sense that it's 99.997% vacuum space. It's 0.003 solid, everything. Your skull, (laughs) your table, your chair, the floor, the planet itself is 99.997% vacuum space. So what the hell are you thinking it's solid for? It's not. You're having the impression of solidity because of the interaction of vibrations. And so vibration is giving you the perception of a reality around you. And it's not any more real than, than things were in the womb. I think that's such a great place for us to end on because... We like to do what we call light work, and this is an exercise that in a way helps challenge our listeners to change their reality by changing their thinking, by changing their actions that, yeah, 99% of what they're doing is it doesn't need to be reality if they want it to change. And so we would love for you to give our listeners a light work exercise or a challenge today. My challenge is to see how silent you can get. You are absolutely being inundated with information, with pictures, with what everybody else is up to in the world through your Instagram and Facebook feeds. And you're, you are not being real right now. You are, you are being distracted from your reality by the news, by everything else happening right now. It's not real. None, none of this stuff is real. It's just a bunch of uh, stories being told from very limited perspectives that keep reinforcing deeply held human beliefs. And so to escape that, we have to totally let go of everything we think is real and spend time in that uncomfortable space of not knowing and being curious. And so go into silence and let your curiosity take you into a new space. Uh, You are not who you think you are. You're ridiculously more beautiful than you know. You are not the culmination of humanity. You're the beginning of humanity. Uh, And so if we're going to start again, as we must, if we are going to rebirth in the body instead in death, then we have to build everything new. 
And we have to start over completely with our socio-political structures, our consumer product structures, all of these things. And it's going to begin as humanity takes a pause, as we've been told we have to right now, and make sure that the new normal is not the old normal when the brakes come off of, of the economy and your productivity. When you're told you can go out and connect to humanity, what vibration are you going to bring? What genome are you going to be expressing in that moment? Is it going to be one of hope or is it going to be one of fear? Is it going to be one of excited curiosity for a future that doesn't yet exist or already exists and we haven't reached? Those are, the, those are your opportunity right now. And so in this sequestration, look at it not as some heavy-handed military state government thing, which on one level it might be, and who cares, because we're going to use it for good. We are going to use it to enlighten ourselves through the silence that's being mandated. Beautiful. You're amazing. Love so it. inspiring. Lots to think about in, in silence. <laughs> Well, thank you so, so much. This was beautiful and amazing. So grateful to you. Danielle, Whitney, thanks for having me on. Appreciate your whole community (laughs) and uh, what you guys have done in your own transformation is inspiring. Mm, Thank you so much. What Zach was talking about at the end and with his light work about getting really quiet reminds me of what we talk about with how food is information, food is an input. And often we consume this food without realizing what noise it can be creating in our systems. Mm -hmm. And that different types of processed foods that contain artificial dyes and colorings, preservatives, um, that these can have an impact on our systems, that they can create noise in our systems that make it difficult for our hormones to function properly, for our bodies to, to do what they need to be doing on a regular basis. And so it made me start to think about that again, about all the different sources of the noise and just starting to get really quiet in all areas by like cleaning out my diet and getting back to this healthy body project, just eating clean, organic, delicious plant foods, I am going to clear out all of that noise and allow my body to really just function at its best. And what do we have the opportunity to hear when all of that craziness is silenced? Like think about what we're missing out on when the inputs are so noisy that we can't even listen to our own voice. Yeah. Or our own signals that our body is trying to tell us. Mm-hmm. Well, today's Sakara story is amazing, and it's from a man, which a lot of people think that we only serve women, <laughs> but indeed we serve men too, and men deserve to feel just as good in their bodies as women do, obviously. This story is from Luke, and he's actually on his 110th week. Yeah, he's been on Sakara. for over two years. Crazy. So this is Luke's Saqqara story. I've always been healthy, yet eating Saqqara meals for two years now has definitely optimized my health. 
Sakara has set the standard for how I want to feel. And I honestly do not experience that same feeling when eating at any quote health food restaurants on weekends. The convenience of the meal program has also allowed me to focus on creating within my unique ability instead of spending a significant amount of time preparing food. Overall, Sakara is irreplaceable and you personally reaching out makes me feel especially cared for. I love that he called out a couple things. One, he said he gets to focus on creating within his unique ability. And then I also like that he called out our team and how much he felt cared for. You know, a lot of people might think that we just serve food or snacks or super powders, but we serve care. Ultimately, that's our job is to make you feel cared for. And we're not, you know, looking out for our bottom line where our number one mission is to make sure you feel the transformation that we promise. And that involves not just an amazing product, but as part of that experience, it's also community and support. Yeah. And if you haven't had the chance to interact with our wellness team over email. They are just so incredible. And they're holistic health coaches, not just there to answer questions about delivery, but really to be there as your support for any questions that you might have while living the Sakara life. Well, thank you so much, Luke, for sharing your Sakara story. And we're so grateful we get to be on this journey with you. If you have a Sakara story that you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at sakarastories at sakaralife.com. That's S-A-K-A-R-A-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at sakaralife.com or send us a DM at sakaralife. Don't forget to hit subscribe for the Sakara Life podcast and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear what we talked about today. And don't forget about the light work. It might feel a little hard, a little uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. The whole idea is that we lean into what's uncomfortable so we all get to shine our lights a little brighter. And we'll see you on the other side, Sakara Lights. Lights.